Well, good morning, everyone. Thank you, Gary, for reminding us of the importance of the Lord's Day, of remembering Christ and how when believers gather together, that is magnified, that is intensified, and causes us to rejoice all the more. Remind you for our drink second hour again as we take the Lord's Supper. Um, it's a means of grace given to the church. We partake of the bread and the cup. As we remember Christ through these elements, God gives us grace. So it is important for us that we take it in a worthy manner. So if you haven't done so already this week, right now is the perfect opportunity for you to confess the sins that you know about, that is hindering you, stumbling you, causing you to hide and run from Christ, that is causing you to have a barrier between you and your Lord, from the risen Lord who is here with us at this moment, Right now, God calls you to repent, to confess, so that you might partake of the bread with Christ and His bride, with full assurance of faith, so that you, you might draw near to Him with boldness and confidence. Also, today's the opportunity for you to reconcile with anyone in the church that there is unholiness or, or sin that has... Uh, caused disunity or caused uh, um, a relationship with that person to be severed, we would ask you um, during the break, not right now, during the break, go to the person and ask, is everything okay between us? Uh, is there peace in our relationship? Uh, is, have I offended you in, in a certain way or you've sinned against me so that you might reconcile before Christ so that we might not take the bread in an unworthy manner? We encourage you to do this so that um, our communion service would be a source of encouragement and edification for, for your soul. It is important for us to note that Christ said, this is the body given for you, take it and eat. And so the bread and cup was prepared for you individually. It's not a general salvation that Christ provided. It's a individually specific salvation Christ has provided for each and every one of us who are believers. He knew you by name and called you by name. And He calls you to feast at this meal. And it's not a buffet table where anybody just comes up and eats. But there is a place set for each and every one of you by name. So after, as you take the bread, it touches your lips. You chew on it and you swallow it. May you remember that as that piece of bread was ordained for you, you would remember that salvation was ordained for you personally. It wasn't just a general salvation given to mankind and by just some coincidence you were found within, within the elect. No, God saved you personally. As you take that cup and you drink and you taste the sweetness, be reminded that that cup was reserved for you. And may we um, marvel at the grace of Christ together this afternoon and may, may cause us to uh, have zeal for Christ, much more than the Dodgers and, and even the Lakers. May it cause us to uh, truly uh, be zealous for Him and His name. Well, if you have your Bibles with you, please open to Timothy chapter 2. And we're continuing our study in this dear epistle, uh, verses 11 through 13. A faithful saying uh, that Paul recounts for Timothy and for us. <clears throat> Many believe that this was a saying that was used by the early church as a hymn, that they would use this to sing and worship God together. So to prepare our time, begin our time, I'll share with you uh, an excerpt from a book I read during my uh, sabbatical uh, last year. Uh, I spent some time reading uh, Jim Collins' book, Good to Great, a book about management, about leadership, about just uh, living in this new world and uh, understanding the dynamics and the forces that are at work in our society and our culture. He mentions um, the Stockdale Paradox a law of survival that takes its name from Admiral James Stockton. He was the highest ranking American POW during, during the Vietnam War. He was imprisoned 
over eight years in Hanoi Hilton. Uh, he was uh, tortured uh, over 20 times uh, so that they might get secrets out of him. He threatened him almost daily uh, to take his life, that he would never see his family again, never see his wife and children. And Jim Collins read his biography in Love and War, and Collins wondered, how did this man endure eight years of torture and suffering in this way? And how was he able to endure through it all when so many other men succumbed to it and um, either lost their minds in prison or lost their lives? Well, he actually uh, interviewed Admiral Stockdale, and he asked him this very question. How he held up in the face of all that isolation, mental torture, and physical abuse. The Admiral explained, I never lost faith in the end story. I never lost sight that I would get out, that I would see my wife again, that I would hold my children, myself, once again. I never lost faith that I would prevail in the end and that, that the experience would not be the defining event of my life, but me getting out of prison would be the defining event of my life. Well, that is somewhat helpful for us as we study this passage. Because Paul understands this paradox as well. That suffering causes short-sightedness. Isolation, suffering, trial, sorrow causes short-sightedness. And that short-sightedness causes us, tempts us to resign and to give up. What helps us to endure through suffering, to stand up under persecution, trials, and sorrows of life, is to have the long perspective, to have the finish line in mind, to remember the goal, the ultimate prize, the end of this race. Not losing sight of that helps us in the present to endure through suffering. So as Paul just told Timothy, remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, descendant of David, this is my gospel for whom I am chained like a criminal. As he reminds Timothy of the suffering that he's currently enduring, he's telling Timothy what is causing him to endure and what would help Timothy to endure in his Christian walk, in his ministry. It's the future hope. And so this trustworthy saying is all about present day reality and how it affects the future. If we died with him, Timothy, if you are saved, we will live with him. If we endure, if you hypomone, if you are steadfast, if you persevere, we will reign. Don't forget that, Timothy. We will reign. The negative portion is if we deny Him, if we uh, surrender and resign ourselves to our worst temptations, our worst fears, then He will deny us. And yet, in the midst of we are faithless, unfaithful, He will remain faithful, for He cannot deny Himself. Paul uses this uh, verse, this hymn, this saying that was common in the early church to remind Timothy to not lose heart, to endure, to give him hope in light of what Christ will do in the future for all Christians. And not just for Timothy, but as Timothy sees Paul He doesn't want this to be the lasting image of Paul and Timothy's mind. This image of uh, Paul, frail and old, suffering, persecuted, scarred, languishing in prison. He doesn't want Timothy's pity. He doesn't want Timothy to feel sorry for him. Timothy, don't look at me and, 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 and feel sorry as if this is the end. This is a means to an end. 
this is a transition. If we died with Him, we will live with Him. If we endure, we will reign with Him. We will rule with Christ. So he's telling Timothy, Timothy, uh, see my situation with the eyes of faith and know that ultimately we Christians, though we are being persecuted, though we are being uh, unjustly tried and tortured and imprisoned and even murdered, it is not the end. But Christ will triumph and we will triumph with him. And, and sobering encouragement and reminder to all of us that as we see other Christians suffering, that we, would, we need to see it through eyes of faith as well. And if we hear of Christians losing their lives for Christ, uh, being martyred for their faith, there ought not be uh, pity, but maybe uh, definitely there ought be a uh, godly jealousy because we know that in a short amount of time we will see that Christian reigning with Christ alive with Christ crowned and, and ruling with the Lord so with that let's go to verse 11 uh, helps us to recapture uh, the eternal perspective I know for many of us it's easy, so easy for us to lose sight of that. And uh, no one here is uh, imprisoned in, in a dungeon, though you might feel like it at times, but that's not the reality. But Christ empathizes with us. So this passage is for you. If uh, you're struggling with habitual sin and uh, you want to resign, why, why am I fighting this sin? Why torture myself, why torment myself I should just hold on to this bitterness, this anger this unforgiving spirit I should just let bitterness take root in my heart and I won't tell anyone, I won't show it but I will just be bitter at this person until my heart's at rest, until I'm content, or why bother trying to be pure in this impure world why fight my lusts why fight my greed, my envy, my jealousy? We are tempted to resign and surrender to your temptations. It might be uh, you're, you're struggling with uh, uh, financial issues in your life, with the economy and your job or your husband's job, and you're given to worry, and the rustling leaves are getting louder and louder, the noise is causing you to fear, and you want to take control over your life. And forget about God's sovereignty, forget about God's promises, forget about God's tr truths and His laws, and do what you think is right in your own eyes. Or maybe you are being persecuted for your faith by your family members, by your siblings, your relatives, co-workers, your friends at school. So you want to... Uh, be quiet and not declare Christ and, and conform to this world and walk in the, in the broad way. Um, this passage is for you, reminding you that what you do today has direct consequence. It's directly connected to the future. Uh, look at this passage, 11 through 13, and look at how it's past, future. If we died, He will, we will. It's present, future. If we endure, we will reign. If we deny, He will deny. Present, future. And then if we are faithless, He will remain faithful. Present to future as well. Reminder to each and every one of us that what we do matters. And if we want to, if we're seeking to uh, be faithful Christians, be good soldiers, we must recapture that eternal perspective and remember how the story ends, what will be the ultimate reality with Christ. 
of verse 11 begins with the words, the saying is trustworthy. Paul uses this phrase five times in the pastoral epistles. First and second Timothy in the book of Titus. It is not found anywhere else in the New Testament. These sayings were expressed as truth statements, axiomatic ideas in the early church. It became common phrases that Christians would use to remind each other of the gospel and gospel truths. The first time Paul mentions this phrase, a trustworthy statement, is 1 Timothy 1.15 where he shares his testimony. It is a trustworthy statement that Christ came to save sinners. Now that is not a verse from the Gospels, it's not a verse from his epistles, but it is a truth statement based on the Gospel of Christ, based upon his statements in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And so Christians would say all the time, Christ came to save sinners. They would use it in evangelism. Christ came to save sinners. It's a truth, trustworthy statement. It's a faithful statement. It's not a fable. It's not a made-up story. It's trustworthy. And Paul adds that a clause, of whom I am the worst. Doubly true for me. He uses this phrase to introduce uh, uh, 1 Timothy 3.1, anyone who aspires to be an elder, to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. was a true statement. Any man desires to be a lay elder in the church, it is a, a, a colossal thing, it's a beautiful thing, a noble pursuit that he is uh, striving after. 1 Timothy 4, 7-9, through 9, um, of how bodily training is of some value, but godliness has value for everything. Paul says that's a truth, trustworthy saying. Right. So kind of like what Gary was saying, sports is not sin or sinful in and of himself. In fact, physical training has some value. <clears throat> but much more than that, godliness has value for everything. So if Christians pursue godliness, we will lose nothing by that pursuit. You pursue physical training, you lose something in that pursuit. But with godliness, it adds to the whole of your life. And then Titus 3, 4 through 8, the trustworthy saying, is that He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy. This uh, truth about uh, undeserved favor, how we are saved and sanctified, not by works, but by grace alone. Paul saying that is a trustworthy statement. This is Paul's last time he mentions this. This is the last faithful saying Paul mentions. Notice how it, it's parallelism, it's rhythmic structure. Uh, many uh, commentators say that this was a song that Christians would sing during Christian worship. Each saying has four, it contains four conditional clauses. First class conditions in the Greek text. Each if can be read as expressing a reality, not merely a possibility. If you are to do this, if you make this a reality, this is the conclusion. This will be the result. Not hopefully, not potentially. If the first condition is met, the second condition is guaranteed. Right. Guaranteed. First class conditional Greek. Let's go to the first one. If we have died with Him, we will also live with Him. We will also live with Him. Aorist tense, simple past tense, first of all, is talking about spirit baptism. This is what is meant by dying with Him. This refers to, to a Christian's identification with Christ's death. It parallels Romans chapter 6, 8 through 11. That all believers, by our faith in Christ, 
in spirit, we've been baptized with Him, meaning we've been united with Him in His death. Our old self is gone. Our old self, positionally, in the sight of God, has been mortified, has been killed, has been murdered. So the picture that that we see in baptism, when we practice it, is uh, someone dressed very nicely, their hair is combed well, they walk down that pool, a little cold on a Sunday morning at our retreat. We have Bob on one side who's shivering because he's cold as well. We have a layout or a care group leader on the other side who's caring for that member. And they, you know, I ask them some questions and they get baptized and they come up and we all clap and we cheer. But that's not the spiritual picture of baptism. The spiritual picture of baptism is the Holy Spirit taking us by our necks and drowning us violently underwater. Forcing us underwater. And we are frailing. We are fighting. We are resisting. All our rebelliousness is coming out. But His grace is irresistible. His mercy and love breaks through. And He overwhelms us. And we are underwater. And we die. Our old our old self has been murdered, mortified, put to death by the Holy Spirit. And as we have come up out of the water, we are in the newness of life. The Spirit has entered. We are a new creation. The old has passed away. He has imputed to us His righteousness. We have the indwelling Holy Spirit who will never leave. He will, will never be passed out. And we are His forever. That's the spiritual picture of our baptism. That's the positional reality of all Christians. Now the practical reality is there's indwelling sin. We still strive. We wrestle after holiness and we fall short and we fail. But positionally before God, we are dead. We no longer live. We no longer exist. That person has died to the law. There is, the law has no authority over that person because he or she is dead. That's spirit baptism. And in that way, we've been identified, united with Christ by faith in Him. We are in Christ. And we continue to live in Christ. And so Paul is saying, if we have died with Christ, if we have died in Christ, then we will live, we will also live with Him. We also live with Him. And we can't uh, neglect this, the second aspect of this death with Christ. It is uh, talking also about martyrdom. I mean, martyrdom can't be far from Paul's mind because he is literally facing death. His name could be called in the midst of writing this letter. Many Christians by this time, AD 67, have given their lives as martyrs for Christ. And an added assurance that if you physically die for Christ, then you will live with Him. What a, what a glorious promise. Let me consider that. That we will live with Christ. We will live with Him. That death is not the end. Death is not the final picture, final reality. It is it's a transition of making that uh, spirit, spirit baptism a reality for us, where on the other side, we will be with Christ. Uh, it is um, uh, a profound truth, uh, empowering truth, that even death cannot separate us with Christ. The thing that we fear the most. And for unbelievers, it's reasonable, it's logical, understandable. Unbelievers should be afraid of death. It's cruelty, it's coldness, it's threats, and what it promises post-death, eternal hell, separate from Christ, separate from God, His love and mercy. Unbelievers should fear death above all. But for Christians... No need to fear death. Unwarranted, illogical, unreasonable. 
Because it is through death we live with Christ. It's like baptism. Again, spirit baptism. No need to fear baptism. It is the death of the old man so that we might live with him spiritually, physically likewise. It is the final death of that old man in the flesh so that at our next breath, we will be with him. We will live with him. Romans 8, 35. What shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, or sword? Sword meaning death? No. It's an exclamation. No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. I am certain that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So, uh, when we... That's what Paul is saying. I'm not fearing death. Timothy, don't fear death. And Christians, don't fear death. Just like spirit, spirit baptism, if we died with Him, we will live with Him. What awaits us is Christ. To be apart from the body is to be pre- present with the Lord. Death doesn't separate us from God. It unites us to God. It takes us to Christ. So, um, I think I was there at uh, Ronnie's grandmother's funeral. And um, hearing uh, Ronnie's mom give testimony, and uh, Ronnie's sister give testimony as well. I remember seeing how she was the spiritual found rock of that family. She loved Jesus. She loved Christ. She loved the gospel. At that funeral, I wasn't sad for her. I I was envious. All Christians there, we were jealous because we know that death was a means to her union with Christ. Just like spirit baptism was a spiritual union with Christ, this final death was but a means for her to be with Christ, to live with Him right now. So that's why for us, more than a Christian wedding, a Christian funeral is a, is a joyous event. It's a you know, it's a celebration event, right? I mean, my funeral, come with, with joy. Come wearing Lakers gear, right? <laughs> I mean, come with celebration. Come with, uh, and go have Korean barbecue afterwards and celebrate. Because if you're still there, you're still um, living in this corrupt world with sin in the flesh. But the believer is living with Christ. I mean just Timothy reading this. What a what an empowering truth for him. Paul continues, if we endure, we will also reign with him. Another conditional clause. Endure demands a continuing experience of bravely bearing up under the hardships and afflictions heaped upon Christians because of his relationship to Christ. If we uh, endure, if we persevere, if we do not vacillate, if we do not stumble or go astray, we are not cowardly during this time, the promise is we will reign with him. Soon Basileo, Basileus is king, so it means to reign with Him, to rule with Him, to be in authority. So in this context, the rulers, the leaders of, the, of, the, of Rome were persecuting Christians, treating them unjustly. Timothy, it's going to all be turned upside down. It's all going to be made right. right. God will vindicate. 
God will, God will reign. He will not be mocked. He will, his justice will reign supreme. If you endure, you will reign with Christ over these unjust rulers, unjust leaders of this present world. Christ promised this while he was on the earth, Matthew 19:28. You who have followed me, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you also shall sit upon the twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. First Corinthians 6, 2 and 3, Paul said, Do you not know that the saints, Christians, will rule the world? We will judge and rule and reign with Christ. This clause promises a victory for all faithful believers. What a hope and encouragement as we for endurance. Now the third one is difficult is a difficult one. It it maybe causes our hearts to skip a beat. There are passages of scripture that are difficult in terms of interpretation. And we went, went through that a few weeks ago. This, this, this verse, interpretation is clear. There is, you know, a, a third grader can interpret this without a problem. The difficulty lies not in what is it saying, but in what it means, its significance, its meaning, its conclusion. It, it, it uh, challenges our our. our man-centered view, conception of Christ that dominate Christianity and that, that influences every one of us. It, it, it confronts and corrects our, our cheesy kind of man-centered, um, diminished Christ that we often have in our minds. It, it, it raises the stature of Christ. He's not a respect of any persons. He's not captive to his emotions toward us. He is not our servant in this way. He is our master, our Lord and King. It reminds us that in His first incarnation, He came meek and lowly, gentle as a lamb, humble. But in His second return, He will come as a mighty warrior with a sword in His hand, riding on a white horse to bring forth judgment. straightforward and clear. We deny Him, He will deny us. We deny Him, He will deny us. The Greek verb here means to reject. We reject Him, He will reject you. You disown Him, you renounce Him, He will disown you, He will renounce you. It is like those... uh, who deny Christ by their theology, by their doctrine, by their word, or those who deny Christ by their deeds, by their behavior, by their conduct, either by theology, like Hymenaeus and Phygelus, or by their conduct, by Demas, who, who loved the world, Christ's response would be singular. I never knew you. I never knew you. Christ said, if you confess me before men, I will confess you before my Father. But if you deny me before men, I will deny you. I will cast you out. I will reject you. I will say, again, Matthew 7, 23, away from me, you workers of iniquity, I never knew you. We never had master-disciple, master-follower relationship. Um, This ought to uh, cause all of us to pause. If, If we think we are standing firm, we should take care lest we should fall. Our response should be like the response to the disciples when in Matthew 26, Jesus said, one of you will disown me. One of you will deny me. 
And each of them went around and said, is it I, Lord? Is it, is it me? Am I the one? Right. Uh, Judas pretended not to hear. And the one person who said, it, it's not me. <laughs> yeah, these guys, they should ask that question because possibility, it's a possibility for them, but not me. I will, I will not deny you. I will suffer for you. I will go to prison for you. I will even die for you. He was the one who denied the Lord three times. Christ says ultimately, those who cement uh, the rejection, they continue and end their lives like Judas in disowning Christ, denying Christ, he will deny. We'll talk about this a little bit later, but it's not talking about Peter. Because ultimately, Peter, it was temporary defection, temporary wavering. He went to Christ. basis of Christ's mercy was restored. But if anyone denies Christ, Christ will deny him. The fourth and final one, verse 13. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. This is the trickiest one out of the four. Uh, two uh, possible interpretations here of what Paul is saying. First, and it's centered around the definition of the word apisteo. Um, unfaithless or unbelief. The Greek word is apisteo. Pisteo is faith. A is the negative. It's like atheism, theos is God, a negates God, against God, right? So it's atheists, those who reject God. Pisteo is faith, a is non or without or not unbelief. So is it unbelief or is it faithlessness, being unfaithful? The first view and um, quite, quite a few uh, commentators and Bible teachers believe the former, that it is unbelief. It means to not believe. A, a state, a continual state of unbelief, lack of saving faith, it's not talking about the content of faith, but it's unbelief. They have a form of godliness, but lack power. They have outward religion, outward conformity to the law, yet in their hearts, there's no faith. It results in ultimately denying Christ. They never had faith in Him for salvation. The only condition by which men are saved is by believing in Christ. John 1.12 But to all who received Him, who believed in His name, He gave the right, the authority, to be children of God. That condition must be met, faith in Christ. And though that faith is given by grace, if a person hasn't received that grace and does not have faith, he or she cannot be saved. So Christ is saying, if you do not believe, if you are found lacking true, genuine, saving, sincere faith, Christ is faithful. Now Christ's faithfulness goes both ways. He's faithful to keep His promises to save, John 3.16, and He's also faithful to carry out his judgments. Right. God will not be mocked. He will be faithful to his word, faithful to his promises. He is a faithful judge. And so he cannot, as it says later on in verse 13, deny who he is, his holy and just nature. He will act consistently with his holiness and he will judge and condemn and pour out wrath to all those who are unbelieving. So in that first interpretation, it is, too positive and too negative. The second view is that it is not unbelief here, apisteo, but it's unfaithful. Right? It's unfaithfulness. The literal meaning of that word is unbelief, but by its context, what it means is unfaithful. 
It is speaking here of, unbel- of believers who fall short in terms of love, loyalty, and devotion. The picture here is given clearly to all of us through Peter's denials. He was unfaithful to Christ. He was not devoted in his love to stand with Christ, to suffer and even die with Him. But he denied the Lord. He wavered in his faith. He was restored, but it was restored not because of his dedication or devotion, but because of God's love and mercy. Again, the contrast is Judas denied the Lord, cemented his denial by refusing to come to God based upon grace and mercy. He would pay for his own sins by committing suicide. He would not go to God and accept mercy. Contrast that to Peter. Same sin, but went to Christ. He had nothing to boast on, nothing to stand upon, but he went on the basis of Christ's mercy. What do I believe? I believe the latter. I believe the second interpretation is correct. That Paul is speaking here of unfaithfulness, not unbelief. Let me give you three reasons why I believe this. First reason is uh, context. Right? The most important rule in inter- interpreting the scriptures is context. And the most significant issue in determining the meaning of a word is also context. When you try to interpret a clause or a, fr- or a phrase or a sentence or a passage or a chapter of, of scripture, you consider its context. Same thing in the most uh, uh, base form when you're interpreting words. The greatest weight is given to its context. So let's look at the contact, context here. The whole section is action equals a parallel conclusion. Right? If then, if then, if then. If we have died with him, we will live with him. If we endure, we will reign. Right? If we, uh, if we deny, he will deny. If we do not believe, he will not believe us. Right? That's the way it should be. If it's unbelief. But the contrast is faithfulness of Christ. It's not, if it's faith, if we have unbelief, then it should be, he will not believe us. But it makes sense, if it's faithfulness, if we are unfaithful, he remains faithful. It is because of this reason that um, the the Theological Dictionary of the New Testament, the standard Greek work on uh, Greek definitions of the Bible, they go through classical Greek, Old Testament, Septuagint, translation of the uh, Hebrew into Greek, New Testament Greek, and the Gospel Greek, and the Luke and Greek, and Pauline Greek. It's a standard work by Gerhard Kittel. Any Bible student worth his weight and salt, you know, knows what they're doing, has a, has this volume in their, in their library. The text that I go to, I don't want to go there. If I have to go there, I go there because it's a 10 volume set, and I have to remind myself of the Greek alphabet <laughs> to, uh, to research this. And I, and, and I was forced to do this this week. You go to Kittle, and Gerhard Kittle, 100 scholars contribute to this work, says, in Romans 3.3 3, and 2 Timothy 2.13, our pisteo is unfaithful, not unbelief. Right, so first reason. Second reason is the word mene, remains. If that word wasn't there, it would give less weight to this interpretation. But because that word is there, it gives strong weight to the view that it is unfaithful. Though we are unfaithful, Jesus remains faithful. Mene in the Greek. Christ's faithfulness is unchanged despite our unfaithfulness. We waver, we vacillate, we toss and turn, but He remains. He stands firm. Hebrews thirteen seven. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Right? He remains faithful. 
And the third reason why I believe this is because Paul never uses the word faithful, speaks of the faithfulness of God in a negative sense. Every time Paul speaks of the faithfulness of God, I mean, he never says God is faithful to judge, faithful to condemn. When Paul speaks of faithfulness of God, he speaks of faithfulness in terms of salvation, in terms of rescuing and helping and supporting. 1 Corinthians 1.9, God is faithful by whom you are called in the fellowship of his Son. 1 Corinthians 10.13, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. 1 Thessalonians 5.23-24, may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. Keep you blameless at the presence of our Lord. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Second Thessalonians 3, 3. The Lord is faithful. He will establish you and guard you against the evil one. So, I would say, if I were to add one more, it would be the context again of Paul. Who is he talking to? He's talking to Timothy. Who is timid? who is wavering, who is struggling, and is wrestling in his heart with faithfulness. And Paul is not threatening him. He's not being high-handed with him. The whole tone of this section of Scripture is encouraging, imploring, appealing to Timothy to endure. So it is speaking of God's faithfulness to us. We could uh, exhale a little bit. We can uh, let our guard down and let that truth uh, sink in our souls. That though we are unfaithful, and if we are honest with ourselves, we can recount how we have been, if anything, we've been unfaithful to Him. Anything we have been unfaithful, unreliable, disloyal, divided heart to Christ. And yet, we are Christians today. We come to church this day and worship Him, hear His word, respond in faith, not because of our faithfulness. No, it's because of, in spite of our unfaithfulness, It is because of His faithfulness we stand and pursue Christ. And uh, the, the final clause, He cannot deny Himself. He cannot deny Himself, meaning Christ's nature to us is always one of love. It's one of always uh, mercy and grace and hope. Puritan pastor Samuel Bolton wrote, God has thoughts of love in all He does to His people. Now we might think we're going through suffering, we're going through trial, something's not fair, something's not right, and we wrestle in our hearts, and we might say in our our worst moments, God, do you love me? Are you relating to me on the basis of love right now? Or is it wrath? Is it condemnation? Is it judgment? No. God always relates to us according to His love. Continues, the ground of His dealings with us is love. The manner of His dealings with us is love. The purpose of His dealings with us is love. He has regard and awe to our good here to make us partakers of His holiness, to make us partakers of His glory but it's always on the basis of His love for us. Jesus cannot deny Himself. So, just one final thought to close our time. The first three are are significant. I I don't want to minimize the importance of but the fourth is so helpful to us, so important for us. It, um, it's a watershed issue. It divides Christians into two camps. 
some Christians live their Christian life based upon their faithfulness to God. Christianity is all about what you do for God and what you have not done for God. So this morning, if you've sinned this week, if you've overslept and missed quiet time, if you've been unfaithful to Him, you are not singing from the depths of your heart. You are not worshiping the Lord. You're not receiving grace and mercy because you failed this week. You are here to pay penance. You are here out of guilt and shame. You are here to feel miserable so that somehow you can appease God who is upset and disappointed with you. And you try to muster up some kind of offering to God to satisfy His disappointment. And so you walk lowly, you walk in fear, you walk in isolation, and you're just disillusioned, you're jaded, and this whole day is just work, it's drudgery, it's religion, it's paying penance. But the gospel says, we live, we are saved, not by our faithfulness, We are saved in spite of our unfaithfulness. And that doesn't stop at our conversion. That doesn't stop at our salvation, at our spirit baptism. That continues for eternity. Our sanctification, our glorification, our eternity in heaven is all by grace. Not by faithfulness. It's all glory to Christ. And so gospel teaches Christians that we are here in spite of my unfaithfulness. In fact, my unfaithfulness brings out, magnifies God's faithfulness, not in a corrupt, uh, sinful way where I want to sin all the more. Romans 6, 1, Paul says, may it never be. Faith never operates that way. Faith doesn't twist the gospel where it causes us to sin. Yes, our unfaithfulness magnifies God's grace, but doesn't justify or excuse our unfaithfulness. We still repent of our unfaithfulness, but the basis of our relationship with Christ and relationship with the church, relationship with with everything is based upon not what we have done, but based on what Christ has done once and for 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 us, once and for all on the cross for our sins. That is unchanging. That is steadfast. That is immovable. That doesn't, Shift. It has been established. It is finished. To tell us die, Christ cried out. Therefore, our faith is secure. Our confidence is established. So we are here today because of His faithfulness, which He cannot deny, given to us through the cross of Christ. If that is your basis today, then you then you are not like those who are restless, who are filled with anxiety, always fretting about something, always afraid, always struggling, always complaining, laboring. They're never good enough. They're striving to be good. They're striving to read the Bible and pray and worship, love God and love others, but they're never good enough. And they think that's holiness. That's misery. That's legalism. That's religion. That's the world. That's not Christ. That's not the gospel. If you are living by the gospel and trusting in the gospel of God's faithfulness to us through His Son, then you have faith. There is a rest. You're resting because the Christian life is not dependent upon you or me, but it's dependent upon Christ and He is faithful. He cannot deny Himself and it is done. So we can rest. We can be at peace with joy in our hearts. We can worship and love God. With love in our hearts, we can love one another. Worship Christ and worship Christ with fellow believers with the freedom that the gospel gives. And this alone empowers evangelism and missions. What fuels evangelism and missions is God's faithfulness to us by the cross to forgive us of our sins. 
you know, for the first 10, 11 years, if anything, we struggled with prayer and evangelism. We could do a lot of things, but we couldn't have produce hearts that are seeking to pray, depend upon Christ, and seeking to pr- proclaim the gospel to the lost. And I know the reason why. That's the fruit of legalism. If you have people who are are burdened with works-based sanctification, then prayer goes out the window and evangelism goes out the window. Our hearts lack for evangelism and prayer because of religion, because of legalism. But the gospel of God's grace does so many things, produces so many sweet fruits. And the, the, the sweetest of them, two sweetest are one of prayer. Because we know He is faithful and we are unfaithful, we pray. If we believe faithfulness, our Christ, Christian life is dependent on our faithfulness, why pray? Well, I gotta get to work. I gotta get busy. I gotta labor. Because my Christian life depends upon me. Forget prayer. Why waste time that way? But if I know I am unfaithful and only Christ is the faithful one, then my heart delights to pray and trust in Him and rest upon Him. And if, and if I believe this is the gospel, upon His faithfulness, and He's faithful to forgive me of all my sins, then the gospel becomes a joy. We want to proclaim it from the mountaintops. We want to yell it from the highest buildings. Tell everyone of the mercy that God has given to us. The grace that He has shown us individually. And we want to proclaim it to the whole world at whatever the cost. Even if it means our lives, we would do it because of this grace. Horatius Bonar, a Scottish pastor, wrote, it is forgiveness that sets a man working for God. He does not work in order to be forgiven, but because he has been forgiven and the consciousness of his sin being pardoned makes him long more for its entire removal than ever he did before. An unforgiven man cannot work. He has not the will, nor the power, nor the liberty. He is in chains. A forgiven man is the true worker, the true law keeper. He can, he will, he must work for God. He has come into contact with that part of God's character which warms his cold heart. Forgiving love constrains him. He cannot but work for him who has removed his sins from him as far as east is from the west. Forgiveness has made him a free man and has given him a new and most loving master. Forgiveness received frees him to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. It acts as a spring, an impulse, a stimulus of divine potency. It is more irresistible than law or terror or threat. It is forgiveness that inflames a man's heart for the living God. Let's pray. Oh Lord, what a thrill for Christians to hear of your faithfulness. How it causes one, makes us want to scream and yell and, and shout, how great and awesome are you, O oh Lord. As high as the heavens, Lord, your faithfulness reaches the skies. Your love knows no bounds. You have been faithful to love and be gracious and merciful to us who have done nothing but rebel against you, nothing but hate you and go astray. Lord, every day our guilt is proven in your sight and yet every day your love is new every morning through your Son's cross. God, we... 
thank you for this trustworthy saying. May it be a saying that is near our hearts. A saying that shepherds our souls. That would keep us near the cross. That would help us, keep us, endure through our sufferings. Hope in the midst of our darkest trials. Because you are faithful. Amen.